you got older. <laughs> As Michael pointed out, first impressions can be wrong, and uh, don't uh, don't mistake gray hair for maturity. <laughs> but uh, you, you got what you got. Uh, before I get started, I do want to uh, make a few uh, make a few comments. Uh, I really do appreciate Jim and Crystal organizing this weekend as they have done now for a, a number of years. I've, I've seen some of the work that others have done in organizing studies like this, and, and I know there is a ton of work involved in doing that, and I appreciate very much what they're doing. I appreciate the other three men that I'm getting a chance to sit and listen at the feet of. Uh, I don't believe I've ever had the pleasure of hearing any of the, any of the three of you speak. I've met Mike a few times uh, through his family visiting up in Paris, don't think I've met Mike Estes before. If I have my, you know, sorry about that. I'm sorry that I have forgotten about that. Josh, I've met two or three times, but I feel like I know him better because his father is one of my oldest friends. He's older than I am, so that tells you how old he is. Uh, and one of my heroes in the faith. And uh, if you've never met Danny, uh, Danny's just a, a special, special person. And let me say how much I appreciate everybody being here. Uh, this is not the Lord's Day or the Day of the Lord that we're going to talk about in just a moment. This is a Saturday, a day where a lot of people are kind of looking forward to uh, taking it easy, catching up on stuff around the house, uh, the honey to-do list, or just to rest and relax and watch basketball or football or whatever it is that we do on Saturdays. Uh, but I appreciate the fact that uh, you folks have come, some of you come some distance, spent some money to be here because you're interested in God's Word. And that's encouraging to me. I think I could speak for everybody else here that we encourage one another by, by making that decision, making that choice. Well, uh, like Mike, I'm going to start out with some pictures. We're going to be talking this morning about the phrase, the day of the Lord. It's a phrase that is found a number of times in the scriptures, and we're just going to simply try to ask what what do we think of when we see that phrase? What does God want us to be thinking about what does what does he expect us to imagine that it means but i'm going to start with a picture and kind of ask you to think about what do you think when you see a picture not so much what you think about the man in particular but what you just think about if you see someone dressed similar to him with a sign somewhat like that Uh, now imagine what you would think if instead of dressed the way he is, looking like a biker, that he's wearing camel hair and eating wild honey. Uh, You probably recognize now that I'm talking about John the Baptist. Because you see, John the Baptist, the Bible tells us in the book of Matthew chapter 3, came preaching a message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now I recognize this sign says, repent, the end is near. But what I hope that we will discover in the next hour is that there's not a lot of difference between that message of John the Baptist and what this fellow is saying, at least with his sign. In fact, if you dress him up in nondescript clothing where you really wouldn't notice him at all one way or another, and in fact his appearance was not unique in any way, that could be Jesus. Because in Matthew 4... The Bible tells us that Jesus came after his temptation in the wilderness preaching the exact same message that John the Baptist was preaching. So again, let's go back and talk about what does this phrase, the day of the Lord, mean? 
It's used um, roughly 25 times in the scriptures, depending on whether you count you know, one passage that may have that same phrase twice or not. But roughly 25 times that it's used in the scripture, most of them are found in Old Testament prophecy. I'll tell you now, we're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Isaiah and the book of Ezekiel. We'll look at a few other Old Testament prophets. But it's also used five times in the New Testament, and none of them are found in Revelation. Uh, and so there's some things to recognize about this phrase that is found in some widely different context, but I would suggest to you has pretty much the same meaning. There's other related terms, day of vengeance, day of visitation, uh, day of judgment, day of calamity, uh, all of them basically having the same idea. This is a term that is, if Sid Latham was here, I'd get an out-loud amen for this. It's an eschatological term. What that means is it's a term that talks about end times. It's a term that describes the end of something uh, for someone. Normally this term is used to describe nations, large groups of people. Uh, We saw with the prophet Jonah, although that particular word is not used, it certainly was implied, or that phrase is not used, it's implied in the message that Jonah had for the the city of Nineveh. But when this term is used, it's talking about the end of something. We're not talking about a 24-hour period. We recognize that, in fact, in the scriptures that terms are often used in a symbolic sense. A thousand years, as described in the book of Revelation, is not literally a thousand years, but it's talking about a very long time. A day, uh, the day of the Lord, may be several days, several weeks, uh, maybe a few months. It's not the length of time that's being described there. It's talking about something significant. Jesus did the same thing in his ministry. He often talked about, especially in the Gospel of John, you'll, talk, you'll hear him, Jesus, saying, my hour has not yet come. Well, actually, the crucifixion of Jesus took several hours. But hour just simply meant a particular moment in time, significant event. And it's the same way when we talk about the day of the Lord, it's talking about a significant event. It is not the same as the Lord's day that's used in the book of Revelation, for example, or in in Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6, where uh, people will hold a day for the Lord. This is talking about a day the Lord has chosen. That's the significance. The Lord's day is often a day, in fact, that we choose to make significance for God. But the day of the Lord is always a day that the Lord has chosen to be significant. Not surprisingly, most of those occasions that we find in the scriptures where we find this phrase or one of the related phrases used, it has to do with the nation of Israel. But not always. In fact, there are significant numbers of examples where this term is used of other nations. I'll, I'll just simply run through them. I've don't got them up on the screen here. Uh, Isaiah chapter 34, verses 8 through 10. Also the book of Obadiah. Uh, it's used on two different occasions in the book of Obadiah. In all of those occasions, it's talking about the nation of Edom, who are described as the brothers of Israel. Of course, we understand that the nation of Eden were the descendants of Esau, while the Israelites were the descendants of his twin brother Jacob. So they were, in very real sense, brothers to one another. And yet this term, day of the Lord, was used about the nation of Eden. In Ezekiel chapter 30, And again in Jeremiah chapter 46, we find this term used about Egypt. Egypt always had significance. 
in its relationship to the people of Israel. Isaiah chapter 14, beginning of verse 24, talks about the day of the Lord as it applied to Assyria. Jonah, of course, had proclaimed that message years before, but they had repented. Well, when God started to speak again about their judgment, this time they would not listen. And so God would bring about their end. Isaiah chapter 13, maybe the most significant uh, term other than as it applied to Israel, it applied to Babylon, uh, a nation that, again, that had great significance for the people of Israel, both in Old Testament times, but also was used symbolically in New Testament times, again, in the book of Revelation, uh, to describe uh, those who are outside of God's people, but yet the enemies of God's people. Well, we've talked about the phrase itself, but we really haven't explained anything uh, about what it means. So let's talk a little bit about what this phrase meant when God said something about the day of the Lord for Assyria or the day of the Lord for Babylon, the day of the Lord for Israel. What what would happen during this day of the Lord? Well, the language is pretty stark. I guess to start with, what we see is that it was of wrath. Look, if you would, in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 32, and, and uh, like Mike, I think I would like to ask just uh, for other people to read, just so you'll hear another voice besides mine, and that'll keep Josh awake since it's still before lunch. Deuteronomy chapter 32, if somebody could um, read there verses 22 through 25. That's scary language, isn't it? Well, it's supposed to be. Uh, God was not intending to pat us on the head and say it's not that bad. God is intending to frighten us. If you would drop down to verse 39 and read 39 through 41. Same reader, please. Yeah, same chapter. Mm-hmm. Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. This is not the kind of language that many of the people in the world want to hear from God. I suspect you are probably like me, that you've talked to people about God, and you've talked to people about uh, what the Bible teaches about God. And not all of those things are very pleasing to people of the world. There are many people who have said, well, if God is like that, then I don't want him to be my God. Well, God is like this, because he says he is. He says, I kill and I make alive. The day of the Lord is frightening because the day of the Lord is a day of God's wrath. 
Now, I think we recognize, and I'm not going to take the time to try to establish in our lesson this morning, that it's the deserved wrath, but nonetheless, it is wrath. And when we talk about that day of the Lord, we cannot ignore, forget, or just simply put aside the fact that this is God's anger that we're discussing. I mentioned Isaiah 13 in verse 9, specifically here talking about in the context of Babylon. Interestingly, the time period in which Isaiah wrote this, Babylon was not really a player on the world stage. They had, in fact, been defeated and subjugated by the Assyrians at the time that Isaiah was writing this. They were, in many ways, trying to make alliances, specifically with Judah, they had sent emissaries to Hezekiah when they heard that he had recovered from his sickness. And, of course, that's when Hezekiah showed them all the treasures of his house and showed him all the treasures of the temple, kind of bragging on himself. And God had told him, said, that was a mistake. And then, in fact, they would be taking all of that stuff back with them someday. But it was that time period that we find this kind of prophecy here in Isaiah chapter 13. Particularly, notice verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. God is not going to overlook sin. God is not going to just set it aside and say that didn't happen. You often hear about people talking about second chances. Well, yes, there are second chances, but there are not unlimited chances. And the day of the Lord is a reminder to us that all sin will be answered one day. All sin will be answered. But we don't have to wait until the final day of the Lord. Because what I want us to recognize is that God has had a number of days of the Lord. And he may still have more in mind. Um, It's a day of judgment. Staying in the book of Isaiah, look at chapter 34. If somebody could read verses 8 through 10 there, please. Isaiah chapter 34, verses 8 through 10. Again, do you see the language that's being used here? What I find interesting is in this context, this is one of those passages I mentioned earlier, this is talking about Edom. And you talked about the smoke rising up forever and ever. When God judged the nation of Eden, they were judged. It was a final judgment for them. They no longer existed after God's day for them, a day of vengeance as is described there. Even Psalm 110, one of the most famous and messianic psalms that you can find in Scripture, verse 6 is the one that we are so, I'm sorry, verse 4 is the one we're so very familiar with. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
Here's that very obscure reference that's found of a man who's mentioned only one time historically in the scriptures when Abraham had gone uh, to rescue his nephew Lot and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah when the nations to the east had come and reasserted their authority over them and taken them captive. And Abraham had taken his servants, 318 if I remember correctly, and gone and defeated those kings. And on the way back, he came through Salem and the king and priest of Salem, a man named Melchizedek, met him blessed him, Abraham gave him tithes, and then the book of Galatians tells us how important that was to recognize that in doing so, God was showing that ultimately the cause of Christ, the high priesthood of Christ, is superior to that of Levi. And so Paul and Galatians and the writer of Hebrews both make that point for us. But we often will stop at that verse and say, well, here is a messianic prophecy about Jesus that he is going to be a high priest just like Melchizedek without beginning and end. And all those things are true. But the psalmist didn't stop there. Because look at what he says next. The Lord is at your right hand. He's still talking about Jesus the high priest. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. We don't think of those things associated with the high priesthood of Jesus. But we should. God certainly did. The high priesthood of Jesus not only means, of course, the life for those who are in Christ, but it also means death for those who are not. And that's what We need to recognize about the day of the Lord. Even some of the language we've already touched on just a little bit, but notice some of the other things. Somebody turn to the book of Zephaniah, please. Zephaniah chapter 1 and verses 14 and 15. Here is the great day of the Lord. Here and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. And yet the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Again, what we have images here, this darkness, this gloom, this is the sort of thing a Hollywood producer would just love. Think, oh man, I can really make a, a great movie out of this or make a great picture out of this. And yet this is the language that God uses. But specifically this idea of darkness. Look also in the book of Amos. Amos chapter 5. And somebody could read verses 18 through 20 there. Amos 5 verses 18 through 20. I love Amos's question there. Why do you desire it? Why do you want it? He said there's, there, you know, I love that image there. Running away from a lion right into the hands of a bear. 
or come into the house you think is safety and security and you finally just kind of rest against the wall and a serpent bites your hand. He said there's nothing glorious about that. It's horrible. It's terrible to imagine. Even the most famous passage from the Old Testament, the book of Joel. Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, and I'll begin reading in verse 28. It shall come to pass afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This is the kind of language we read this isolated and we say this is final judgment. This is when the Lord's going to come back and everything's going to be done away with and we're all going to go to heaven. But that's not what Joel was talking about. We know that because Peter tells us what Joel was talking about, and it began, he says, the day of Pentecost. These were the signs that would come before this great and awesome day of the Lord. We need to be careful that when we see language like this, that we put it in the context in which it was used. We apply it in the context in which it was used. You see, the thing about the day of the Lord is that it means suffering. In Matthew 24, and this is a longer passage than than we really need to read at this point, but I'm going to pick up just a few things from this passage. Matthew 24, of course, is that question that Jesus was asked by his disciples. They had kind of, they've been walking away from Jerusalem up the western slope of the Mount of Olives, and as they stopped partway up to rest, they look back at the city, and if any of you have ever seen pictures of the city of Jerusalem, uh, where Herod's temple would have been at that time, that was today the Dome of the Rock, would have been just magnificent to see. Particularly with the sun behind it as it was late in the day, and the sun would have been shining off the top of the uh, of the temple, and it would have been glittering gold. Herod, of course, had spent you know, just tons and tons of his own money to try to buy the affection of the Jews and had made this a just a beautiful, beautiful building to look at. And so the apostles had said something to Jesus about, yeah, isn't that pretty? Something of that nature. And Jesus told him, says, do you see all those magnificent buildings? I tell you that there will not be one stone left on top of another. Jesus was feeling that compassion that Michael talked about. Jesus knew what the destiny of the city of Jerusalem was. He had been preaching it since the beginning of his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And even now, his disciples still haven't grasped what that meant. So Jesus is going to try once again to get them to understand. Picking up in verse 4. Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for these things must take place, but the end is not yet. 
Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of the death pains, or the, excuse me, birth pains. They will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Many will fall away, betray one another, hate one another. False prophets will arise and lead many astray. Notice who Jesus is talking about here. He said, among you, there are going to be people who will hate one another. There will be people who will betray one another. There will be false prophets that will rise up and lead others astray. He wasn't talking about just the Jews now. He's talking about his disciples. He's talking about people like Demas that we read about. And we talk about how sad that must have been for Paul. Here's someone on one occasion, he talks about Demas being his fellow worker. And then in a later letter, he has to say that Demas has loved this world and has forsaken me. How much that must have hurt to think of somebody like that. Or as Paul told the elders of the church at Miletus, that from among them old selves, people would rise up and lead people astray. To think what that must have been like for the elders of the church in Ephesus. That someday they would have seen one or more of their own members, their own number, that would start to take the church and divide it and lead people away from the Lord. And Jesus said this is going to happen. Drop down to verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, of course Daniel had prophesied of these things, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus wasn't speaking symbolically anymore. He says when this day comes, get out of town. He warns them, he says... uh, Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house. Don't bother packing. He says, pray that your flight not be in the winter, down at verse 20. For for then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. There's great suffering involved in the day of the world. Quite honestly, these are things I don't like to talk about. I don't even like to think about them. But yet, they are true. In many ways, that phrase, the day of the Lord, means the end of the world. It means the end of the world for the group of people that this term applies to. It meant the end of the world for the Edomites. It meant the end of the world for the Babylonians. It meant the end of the world for the Assyrians. It meant the end of the world for Israel. Israel no longer exists as a nation because God said their end has come. I recognize there is a nation today that calls themselves Israel. But we know from biblical history, we know that's not the Israel of the Old Testament. That doesn't exist anymore. It never will. What causes something like this to happen? What causes God to say, no more? I will no longer put up with them. Well, one thing we find in Isaiah chapter 2. If somebody could read Isaiah chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, please.
everyone who is proud and mocked you, against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be obeyed. Again, remember this is the context of Isaiah chapter 2. One of the best Bible teachers that I've ever had in my life, a man who has since passed on to his reward, taught me years and years ago that there are five chapter 2s in the Bible that are related to one. Isaiah chapter 2, Psalms 2, Joel 2, Daniel 2, and then it's all fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. This is talking about the establishment of the Lord's kingdom, and yet in that context... What does he say? The day of the Lord is because of the arrogance of men. The arrogance of men who would say, if God is like that, then I don't want him to be my God. The arrogance of people who would do, as Michael talked about, would say, you know, this man is from God, but we've got to stop him. The arrogance of people who say, I'm going to do what I want to do. I know the Bible says that, but... The day of the Lord is for those who think more highly of themselves than they ought. In chapter 13, again, and again, remember this context is talking about Babylon, before Babylon had become Babylon. Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 11, I will punish the world for its evil, for their wicked, for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. God is speaking about a people that yet not, had not yet even become as arrogant as they would be to the point where their king would one day stand on the top of his palace and say, look at what I have done. Look at what I have built. Arrogance brings about the day of the Lord. Violence brings about the day of the Lord. If somebody would read Amos chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. You know who suffers the most violence at the hands of people like this? The helpless, the weak. It's the law of the jungle, if you would. I've watched some of those nature shows, and they'll show the lion you know, crawling through the grass. The lion does not pick out the strongest one of the gazelles and say, I'm going to teach them all a lesson, take down their leader. No, what he looks for is a young one that, still doesn't have a good balance, or one that's sick and a straggler. And the lion waits until he can get them away from the herd and then pounces. And far too often, people are just like animals. They look at one who's weak and they attack them. And the violence done to those who are weak is a cause for God's day of the Lord. Corruption. We don't need to look at this passage of Zephaniah because the one in Amos talks about much the same thing. The abuse of power. People who are given a position of leadership, trust, and yet can't be trusted. The love of money. Ezekiel chapter 7. If somebody could read verses 12 through 19, please.
Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for wrath is against all their multitude. Indeed, the seller will not regain what he sold as long as they both live, for the vision regarding all their multitude will not be averted. Nor will any of them maintain his life by his iniquity. They have blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but no one is going to the battle, for my wrath is against all their multitude. The sword is outside, and the plague and the famine are within. He who is in the field will die by the sword. Famine and the plague will also consume those in the city. Even when their survivors escape, they will be on the mountains like doves of the valley, of all of them mourning, each, each over his own iniquity. All hands will hang limp, and all knees will become like water. They will gird themselves with sackcloth, and shuddering will overwhelm them. And shame will be on all, their, all faces, and baldness on all their heads. They will fling their silver into the streets, and their gold will become an abhorrent thing. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their appetite, nor can they fill their stomachs, for their, their iniquity has become an occasion of stumbling. At the beginning, he talks about the buyer and the seller, and how the, the buyer and the seller are going to mourn, because the buying and selling will stop. And then at the end, he talks about those who have the silver and gold, those who have all the wealth. They find it doesn't taste very good. In fact, it won't fill their belly, won't fill what their real need is. Uh, of course, Paul tells us the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. The love of money is the cause of God's wrath. Hypocrisy. Romans chapter 2, Paul talks about those who were quick to judge the Gentiles as deserving the wrath of God and he says in doing so they condemn themselves because they hypocritically practice the same things that they condemn in others. Again, they deserve what they get. That's what Paul's trying to get us to realize. And finally, those who mock God's people. Obadiah again talking about the people of Edom. The reason why God was so angry with the Edomites is because when Israel suffered, and we could rightfully point out that they suffered at their own hands, they suffered because of what they'd done, the Edomites sat back in their mountain retreats and laughed and scoffed and said, Aha, we're happy to see them get it. And God says the same for you. Now, let me pause at this moment. It's as good as any to point out that our culture, our country, is not Israel reincarnate. The United States of America has never had a covenant relationship with God. We are not the people of God as Israel was in the Old Testament. And so we have to be careful when we start looking at things like this and we say, well, you know, the enemies of the United States are these other nations that God is going to bring this wrath on. On the other hand, are we arrogant? If you've lived overseas or spent much time overseas, you'll get a different view of the United States than what we have of ourselves. A good Christian friend of mine told me, he says, the United States goes into these various countries as peacekeepers and they never leave. And that got me to thinking, to realize, there's different ways of being an empire. You don't have to necessarily try to conquer people to try to develop an empire. Are we violent? 
since 1973, more than one million innocent children have been legally put to death in our country. Every year. Every year. Are we violent to the helpless? Folks, that's the law in our country. We pay doctors to do that. Does the Lord not hear the cries of those souls? Corruption? Well, you and I don't have to talk about that very much. We get disgusted every election. The love of money. Again, every election. Hypocrisy. Mocking God's people. This is something that I see more and more of. The ridicule that we as a nation have towards Christianity. In many cases now, people will try to put us to shame for espousing the cause of Christ. No, we are not Israel. Are we Babylon? Are we Assyria? Are we Edom? Are we Egypt? Those are things that we as God's children have to consider. We have to think about we can't hide from it as frightening as it is for me and I hope it is for all of us to think about. I talked earlier about what happens in a day of the Lord. I didn't give you the full picture. Let's go back and look at the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. Because what else happens at a day of the Lord, we talked earlier from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 31, and I specifically stopped at verse 31. If somebody would go back there to Joel chapter, or Joel chapter 2, I, I put 38, I think it's actually supposed to be 32. The day of the Lord is judgment, but the day of the Lord is also salvation. The day of the Lord we talked about was darkness, gloom, but the day of the Lord is also deliverance. We talked about that with Obadiah, the fact that God had promised for the Edomites that there was destruction for them, yet when we drop down to verse 17, but in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau stubble. And they shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Israel. For the house of Ehal. Because the Lord has spoken. There is deliverance. And finally the last verse. Saviors will go up to Mount Zion. To rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Did you get that? The kingdom shall be the Lord's. Remember what John the Baptist was saying? <laughs> Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, of course, also said that same thing. The reason why the day of the Lord also means deliverance is because the day of the Lord is also about justice. When we talk about God's wrath, it's not because God just likes to be angry. God's wrath comes about because of God's justice. And the day of the Lord is all about that justice. 
Somebody could read Ezekiel 39, please. Verses 7 and 8. I don't know if you've ever done much study about the temple, but one of the things that has struck me in recent years as I've just read through the Old Testament or taught from the, uh, taught from the time of Solomon afterwards, when Solomon built the temple, he specifically said, this building is not for God. He said, I can't make a building for God. What he said was the temple was for the name of God. That building was a, a place where God's name was to be worshipped and honored. And interestingly, that's what God says here in Ezekiel 39. He says, my name is going to be known. My name is going to be vindicated. My name is going to be justified. God's all about justice. Finally, in Joel, Joel chapter 3, if somebody could read 16 through 21 there, please. Uh, down through 21. And in the day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the, the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. And a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to the water to the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, and whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Something comes from that day of the Lord. Justice. Righteousness. Things are made new. We'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, One of my favorite passages in talking about the day of the Lord is the very last chapter of the Old Testament. Interestingly, this is a passage that talked about John the Baptist, who we started with. Back in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, is uh, one of the prophetic references to John the Baptist, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, saying, prepare the way for the Lord. But then getting to chapter 4, starting in verse 1, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant, the evildoers, will be stubble. The day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave, uh, leave them neither root nor branch. But as for you who fear my name, The Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. I think very much of the image of the the legend of the phoenix, the bird that rises from the ashes. That's what comes out of this day of the Lord. Make no mistake about it. There are ashes. There are stubble. The day of the Lord is burning. But something will rise from that. With healing in its wings, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I've never lived on a farm. I've only seen videos of a calf being born or a foal being foaled. But when they come out, the first thing they want to do is they want to get up 
And as soon as they can get up, then they want to start walking. And as soon as they can walk, they want to run. And that's the image that God is telling here. Leaping like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules I've commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. God's people will rise from the ashes in the day of the Lord. And in fact, what we find with the day of the Lord is that all things are made new. I believe in 2 Peter chapter 3, that's what Peter is referencing here. I recognize there's many who read this and see this as talking about final judgment. But I have problems with the fact that it talks about a new heaven and a new earth. I think what this is talking about is how God's people, the kingdom, rises from the ashes, if you would, of the burning of Jerusalem. God's destruction of physical Israel allows spiritual Israel to shine forth. And indeed, in spiritual Israel, all things are made new. It's the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31, and the writer of Hebrews repeats for us. It's how all of this is made new. I think the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, again, is talking about that. What rises from the ashes from that day of the Lord. But really, a lesson like this would be incomplete if we don't ask the last question that we're going to talk about. What does that mean for you and me? How do we prepare for a day of the Lord? What's necessary? And that's where we're going to look at those passages that we talked about in the New Testament, none of which come from the book of Revelation, but they tell us how to be prepared for a day of the Lord. First of all, we'll start in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Let me pause at that moment. Why does Paul know they've been fully prepared? He was the one who did much of the preparing. Paul spoke about that day of the Lord in Thessalonica. He warned them about something that was coming. He says, so I know you're fully prepared. While people are saying, there is peace and security. Now, quite honestly, hearing the message that I've been talking about this morning or hearing someone talking about peace and security, which one would you rather hear? I know which one I would rather hear. I'd much rather hear somebody talk about peace and security. Feel good message, Joel Osteen type message. Paul says, while people are saying that, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brethren, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, 
having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Paul says, be watchful, be vigilant, be looking for what's going to happen. What that means is that we don't get distracted by the things of this world. At best, the things of this world are fleeting pleasures, as the writer of Hebrews said about Moses choosing not to be with Egypt. At worst, the things of this world are what cause the day of the Lord in the first place. And if we allow ourselves to get distracted by those things, arrogance, violence, the love of money, all those things that we talked about, then we will most certainly be in the darkness and we will be caught by them. Secondly, we have to live in holiness. Returning back to 2 Peter chapter 3, that's exactly what Peter was telling them. 2 Peter chapter 3 and picking up in verse 11. Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Each one of us should live every day as if this is our last day on earth, this earth. Every one of us needs to live as if this is the beginning of the day of the Lord. And finally, be John the Baptist. Be Jesus. You don't necessarily wear a biker outfit and hold a sign that says, Repent, the end is near. But we need to be proclaiming this message. We need to recognize that when God promised a day of the Lord, it came. And when it came, it meant the end. It meant the end for their life as they knew it, their world as they knew it. Perhaps, maybe even especially, this message needs to be for our brethren. Peter's first letter. Peter's first letter is all about persecution. The persecutions that they were facing at the hands of the Jews that was going to get worse, the persecutions that they were going to face at the hands of the Romans, all of the context of 1 Peter, even chapter 3 that Michael talked about, was talking about persecuted at the hands of those who were not God's people, and it's telling them, be ready for that. In chapter 4 and verse 7, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Here's the same language. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. Whoever speaks, we know this verse very well. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the oracles of God, whoever serves the strength that God supplies in order that everything God may be glorified. Drop down to verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to us. 
Peter's telling you, when these things happen, don't go, why didn't somebody warn me? We need to be ready. He says in verse 14, if you're insulted for the cause of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and God rest upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, thief, or evildoer, or meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Yes, the day of the Lord involves suffering. It involves pain. Even in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that man who was living with his father's wife, a sin that was so heinous that even the Gentiles in Corinth said, wait a minute, that's, there's something wrong with that. Paul says you need to deliver his soul in the day of judgment, in the day of calamity, the day of the Lord. So how do we prepare? How do we get ready? You may be asking, am I predicting that there's going to be a day of the Lord for the United States? No. And yes. No in the sense that I'm not about to be so arrogant as to put myself and say, when God has had enough. I don't know the answer to that because God has not prophesied it to the best of my knowledge. But yes, in the sense that I know what God has always said about any people who have done the sort of things that we talked about, the arrogance and the violence and the mocking of God's people. I know what God has promised. How far are we that path? You need somebody smarter than me to tell you that. But that's the path that we're headed down. I don't like to think about it. I really don't. But you know what else? I hate to think about if my brothers and sisters in Christ, my children, my friends, my neighbors, aren't ready, aren't thinking about it, aren't prepared for when that comes. No, the day of the Lord is not something you would wish on anybody. Again, remember Amos 5 and verse 18. Why do you desire the day of the Lord? But recognize that if it does come, and we keep our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that God makes something good out of that. He makes all things new again in Christ. Appreciate everybody's attention.